As Taylor pointed out a moment ago, it's a delight to have the planter of the first Reformed church in Albania in the last 2,000 years here with us today. Bertie and Jenny are, are home and uh, with us for the next few weeks and their children. I wondered who that strange woman was standing by Bertie when I first walked in and realized that's his daughter who's grown 18 inches since the last time they were here. So <clears throat> if uh, you will want to get on their their dance card very soon because it's probably already full. So grab them either this morning or tonight at some point. It's a delight to, to see them. Hopefully we'll have an opportunity to hear from them as well. You will want to be in our combined Sunday school this morning because this may be your last opportunity to hear from our beloved Mark Kuo, our intern who is getting ready to head back to Taiwan, who'll be teaching this morning. In Galatians 4.4, the apostle Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Throughout the preceding 40 centuries before the incarnation of Christ, God had so engineered the course of human history that everything was now prepared for the coming of the Messiah. The preparatory Old Testament revelation had been completed under Malachi 400 years before the birth of Christ. The forerunner, John the Baptist, had been born just as promised in Malachi chapter 3. A virgin had conceived a son just as promised in Isaiah 7:14. All was in readiness for the Redeemer's appearance. And this morning what we're going to examine is God's providence in the journey to Bethlehem and the birth of Christ. Then this coming week on Saturday night at our Christmas Eve service, we'll look at the providence of God in the mysterious visitors. And next Sunday morning, and yes, we will be worshiping next Sunday morning, we will be looking at the providence of God in the protection of the infant Jesus. Let's seek the help of the Lord now as we prepare to open this word. Oh, Father, by your Holy Spirit, you have given the scriptures for our instruction. And by your providential care, you have preserved the word pure and intact for millennia. So that not one of your words has fallen to the ground. So that we hold in our hands now the truth. So now give your servant zeal and clarity and wisdom as he seeks to feed your flock. Let him say with the Apostle Paul that he's kept back nothing profitable from his hearers. Empower him to handle the word skillfully and with reverence. Now also give those who hear this morning tender and teachable hearts under the word. Use the preaching of this word today to correct and encourage us so that we might be wise, mature, effective servants of our King. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I hope you have your copy of the Gospel of Luke open to Luke 2. We're going to dig into those first seven verses, probably some of the most familiar verses in Scripture to you, but we will not take that for granted, and so I hope you will be digging in with me. The first thing I want us to think about is the providential nature of the journey, that journey taken at the last moment from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why was the sovereign of the universe born under foreign oppressive rule? Why was the one who came to proclaim liberty to the captives, according to Isaiah 61, born a subject 
of one of the most fiercely despotic dictators ever. We see an interesting picture here. This Jesus, who as an adult will command his followers to render to Caesar what is due him, even as an infant in the womb is obeying the decree to go and be registered. Even as a prenatal infant, Jesus is showing us the necessity of obedience to civil magistrates, even corrupt ones, who seemingly move people around like pawns on a chessboard without any thought for their welfare. The command that comes from Caesar Augustus may seem pointless and annoying, but the command is not an imperative to sin. It doesn't violate the moral law. And so Jesus, even in the womb of Mary, joyfully, completely, immediately obeys it. This Jesus, the one who was the lawgiver from atop Mount Sinai, who gave the fifth commandment to submit to lawful authority, such as parents and elders and magistrates, was made, according to Galatians 4, under the law. In other words, this Jesus submitted to authority. In the family home, he submitted to Mary and Joseph. In school, he did what his teachers commanded. In the synagogue, he submitted to the elders. In the realm of the civil government, he submitted to the magistrate. And this commanded journey is the providential method God uses to move Mary, with Jesus in utero, to where he needs to be to fulfill prophecy. Now look carefully at Luke 2, verse 1. The Caesar Augustus, who is mentioned in Luke 2, verse 1, was the nephew of Julius Caesar. And this Caesar Augustus had clawed his way to power by defeating Anthony and Cleopatra. He had an incredibly long reign of 44 years. He reigned from 30 B.C. to 14 A.D. And by political astuteness and military power, he put an end to all the terrible civil wars which had raged throughout the Roman world. He was the first of the Caesars to be called Augustus, or revered, holy. And he demanded emperor worship as God. He took the title Dominus et Dies, Lord and God. That's the one issuing the edict. And what Luke is doing here is he's sort of chuckling as he writes these words. He's drawing a contrast between earthly pretensions to power and the real power of the sovereign Lord, the one who by providence uh, puts together everything that comes to pass. Here is Caesar Augustus, a man striving to be God, demanding that people call him Lord and God. And of course, as soon as he walks away, they snicker. But Jesus is God, coming down and taking flesh. Doesn't this show the values of the kingdom? That the gospel always stoops low and humbles men. Caesar's rule brought up a period of unprecedented calm. It was known as the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. He brought to this huge empire of Rome that stretched out over continents a permanent organization which actually facilitated the spread of Christianity with its open borders and outstanding roads. And this census he demands, wherein Rome will now have the names, the occupations, the property, and the family connections had to be entered in 
public registers, all for the purpose of taxation. The Jews were under Roman subjection, and they even had their own puppet king, the half-breed king, Herod the Great. And Caesar decides to demand this, this huge taxation move around just when Mary is due to, to deliver. Now, did Caesar in Rome know anything about Mary in Nazareth? Of course not. Did he know that she was past eight months pregnant? Of course not. Does Caesar order this massive national tax upon his Jewish subjects because he wants to make sure the Messiah gets to Bethlehem to be born there? Of course not. He's simply indulging his tyrannical bent and his insatiable desire to have more of the hard-earned shekels of his citizenry. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. And what this teaches us is God takes even the corrupt acts of oppressive, greedy tyrants to fulfill his purposes. So my friend, we'll speak to this more a little later. And then beginning in January, when we begin to study First Peter, we will speak to this in great detail. When you bitterly complain about the rulers God has placed over you, not only are you breaking the fifth commandment and need to repent, but you're denying God's providence that he can and will bring good for his elect even through them, even through this, this act of astounding, Tyranny by Caesar Augustus. God fulfills prophecy and does good for his people. Now I want you to think about the destination of this journey. Look at verse 4. The destination is Bethlehem. Why? Once again, God takes and uses the free, uncoerced actions of men and uses them to accomplish his purposes for good. In this case, the motive of the Roman Caesar, his motives were greed control, but God used it to fulfill prophecy, thus proving forever the words of Proverbs 21, the king's hand, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Mary and Joseph are the ones who appear to be helpless pawns, caught in the clutches of secular history, but their every step was under the providence, the supervision in the plan of a sovereign God. <clears throat> Little did Caesar Augustus and Herod and Quirinius realize they were only instruments in the hand of a sovereign God, carrying out the purposes of the king of kings. Little did they know, by decreeing this tax, they were helping lay the foundations of the kingdom that would soon crush all other kingdoms, especially the Roman Empire. God sovereignly placed it in the mind and heart of Caesar to call for taxation and a census. But the Lord of history was using this for a different purpose, <coughs> to fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5.2. In Micah 5.2, some seemingly obscure words given hundreds of years earlier. Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now note that the formal prophecy <coughs> itself tells us that this one's goings forth 
from of old, from everlasting. <clears throat> In order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, it can't be just somebody from the lineage of David. It can't just be in Bethlehem Ephrathah. It must be (coughs) the coming in flesh of an eternal person, God in the flesh. There were world-class cities in Jesus' day, places of commerce and government, seats of power and influence, Jerusalem, Rome, and Athens. If you long for importance and notoriety and impact, you went there. But Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. <coughs> even, the, even the prophecy of Micah 5 says that this is a tiny town of all the, the thousands of towns in Judah. The Messiah was to be born in a nowhere place, according to verse 4. The Savior was born in a tiny village. Our best census records show that maybe when the town swelled, Maybe a thousand people lived there. It was originally called Ephrathah in Genesis 35. Today, some of you have probably been there. It's a small town still, six miles south of Jerusalem. This is where Rachel was buried. This is where Ruth and Naomi came. This is where Ruth gleaned and met Boaz and married him. This is the town that was called David's city. David was born here and tended sheep here. This is where three of David's mighty men broke through Saul's forces and got David a a drink from the wells of Bethlehem when he was in the cave of Adullam. This is where David was born and anointed for kingship. And one of the great jokes on Caesar was Bethlehem, this Bethlehem that Joseph and Mary had to report to. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Where else would the one who would be called the bread of life be born but in Bethlehem. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the purpose of his own will and the birth of Christ was no exception. But the lowliness of place didn't stop there. If you think, okay, Jesus makes the trek in utero down from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem in his mother's womb. He's born in this place, this little town, Bethlehem. But the lowliness didn't stop there. Jesus was taken back after fleeing to Egypt, was taken back to Nazareth, a town in Galilee in the northern part of Israel, a town so inconsequential that it's not mentioned in the Old Testament or the writings of Josephus or the Talmud. Archaeologists, based on digs and good evidence, say that no more than 500 people could have lived in Nazareth during Jesus' life. And the point we're to see is God so ordained that the Redeemer would always be lowly in his sense of place. Whether it was Bethlehem where where he was born or Nazareth where he grew up, he always grew up in an insignificant place. Then came the birth. Look at verse 6 and 7. Mary's pregnancy was capped off by a bone-jarring, teeth-rattling, exhausting trip. In the very final days of her pregnancy, Mary sets off on a 90-mile trip. It was cold and windy at that time of year, and Mary made the trip while at full term. Whether walking or riding, it would be, and this is an understatement, hard. When the text says in verse 4 of our text that Mary and Joseph went up, 
That's because the elevation shifted and they were going uphill the last 20 miles. And it was a dangerous region known to be filled with bandits. And so you scratch your head and you ask the text, why didn't Mary just stay home in Nazareth, in bed, close to friends and family? Mary and Joseph weren't medical simpletons. They knew this wouldn't be the safest thing to do. So why did they go? Because the Lord's providential purposes must be accomplished. And this teaches us a profound truth. God's will is usually worked out through very difficult circumstances. His way is usually not the easy way. When Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem, Mary has a normal, painful delivery of her firstborn. But Jesus was safe, healthy, despite the ultra-primitive conditions. He was guarded by the providence of God. I was privileged to be in on the birth of all four of our children. And when our son James was born, we were in St. Louis in seminary. And later we realized how kind God's providence was to us that the Lord had us in St. Louis and not any other town in America. Because James was delivered in perhaps the finest hospital complex in the world at that time. A massive 1,400-bed complex known as the Barnes Jewish Children's Washington University Complex. And we needed every bit of the world-class care that James received. At several points in the delivery process, he could have died and Sandy herself was in grave danger. At one point, I counted 13 nurses and doctors in the delivery room. There are more instruments and machines blinking. I had no idea they were speaking this other language. It's med speak. I had no idea what was going on. I just knew everyone looked worried. But afterwards, James was placed in a climate-controlled cushy bed. The King of Kings had no such resting place. After his delivery, he was placed in a feed trough. We call it a manger to try to make it sound a little nicer. It was a feed trough. The king of kings was delivered in a stable, apparently attended only by his parents, surrounded by the smell of manure, caught and delivered by the rough, calloused carpenter's hands of Joseph. No teams of round-the-clock sitters and nurses. Look who's mentioned in verse 7. Only Mary. She wraps him. She cares for him. Then there's the part that's the most striking of the providence of God, and that is the providential exclusion. Look at those words in verse 7. It almost comes as an afterthought in Luke's historical description. They laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. When we hear the words, no room, I think of our Famous, at least, to the five people who were on it, the famous family vacation of 1969. We took a vacation, if you could call it that, and we drove to Lake Greenleaf in eastern Oklahoma to camp. And we had what American suburbanites had at that time to vacation with. We had a big canvas tent and a station wagon. And we set up camp on the banks of the lake, and late that night it began to rain. First of all, the rain was coming down normal. Then the rain was raining sideways in sheets of rain. 
And pretty soon, our tent began to flood. So in the storm, we packed up and drove 15 miles into Muskogee, Oklahoma. Yes, that Muskogee that Merle Haggard sings about so eloquently. Every motel we passed going into Muskogee had a no vacancy sign on. And finally, we spotted what looked to be the rattiest motel in Muskogee. And we thought, well, no wonder they still have vacancies. And the line, the light was blinking. When we finally piled into our room at 3 in the morning, sopping wet, bone tired, there were two small beds. And we pulled back the covers, and the sheets were both filthy and bloody. And we are nobody. We're just Okies. But my dad went down to the motel office, got the manager, and insisted, I know we're only paying you $9 tonight, but you will at least have clean sheets on these beds. So the manager came down at 3 in the morning and changed the sheets while we stood and watched. But when the Son of God entered the world, there was not even a filthy room. There was no room. Why was there no room? Scripture doesn't say. Many people have speculated. Perhaps it was because of the census. Any crowd at all would have immediately overflowed all the lodging in Bethlehem. It was just a tiny spot in the road. Or maybe a garrison of Roman soldiers took all the available rooms. Whatever the reason, Joseph and Mary were turned away. The argument could be made that this exclusion was not malicious, just ignorant or indifference. But this act, this act that happens at the very beginning of Jesus' 33 years, this act sets in motion a pattern, a pattern of rejection and exclusion. We're told, for example, in John 1.11, that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But in fact, we need to add something on to that. Though he was and is the creator and rightful owner of all things and could have had royal accommodations, Jesus, all his life, borrowed. He borrowed a place to be born, someone else's cattle stall, someone else's feed trough, because he had no bed. This would continue into his ministry. He borrowed a boat from which to preach. He borrowed a basket of feed, to, of, of food to feed others. He borrowed a room to observe Passover with his disciples. He borrowed a basin of water and a towel to wash his disciples' feet. He borrowed a tomb, even for three days. He so lowered himself that he was a debtor to men his entire life. When you think of there being no room for Jesus, it was the sovereign plan of God that Jesus be an outsider from the moment of his birth. This is perfectly fitting for the one who we are told in Hebrews 13 would die outside the camp. Jesus is rejected and is excluded his entire life. Think about some of the other times he's excluded. He was excluded by his own people. Again, we're told in John 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. His own people on Good Friday morning, 33 years after the birth of Jesus, when the Roman governor Pontius Pilate gave Jesus' fellow Jewish citizens the opportunity to free him, they rejected him, chanting, give us Barabbas. But isn't this exclusion of Jesus, isn't it what Isaiah prophesied 500 years before when he says of Jesus, he will be despised 
and rejected by men. But this isn't the only time when Jesus was excluded. He was excluded and rejected by his own hometown. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is on something of a victory tour. He's been ministering in the lower part of Israel. and He comes back to the northern region, to Nazareth, and he's sort of on a high. Everybody in Israel is, has his name on their lips. And we are told that he comes into the synagogue in Luke 4, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he stood up to read. Luke 4 says, all these things in the synagogue, all these people in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath, rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. His own townspeople wanted to exclude him, reject him, throw him to his death. And then Jesus was also excluded even by his closest disciples. Late that Maundy Thursday evening, when Jesus' captors come, we are told of his disciples in Mark 14. They all forsook him and fled. And the point that we're to get, this little snippet of a phrase in verse 7, No room for him. Being excluded, being left out, was a way of life for Jesus for 33 years. That was God's providence. How do we apply this word? Let me make several applications to you this morning. This whole package, of course, is quite strange. It's certainly not how we would script the entrance of the Son of God into this world. But the message that God wants to clearly send through the text is this. Jesus came all the way down. He laid aside all the prerogatives of deity when he took humble flesh. He emerged as one more faceless subject of a petty tyrant. He underwent the discomfort and the painful jostling of a long, dangerous road trip just before birth. And then he endured all the indignities of a barnyard delivery. God came all the way down. Why would he do this? Paul tells us this. Paul tells us, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus came all the way down so that you might become the king's adopted sons and share in his glory. All of this exclusion, all of this lowering, all of this humiliation is for you. A second application. No child born in the world on that day seemed to have lower prospects. Jesus was a lowly savior. Philippians 2 put it this way. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. That's not just talk. All the details that we've described. Jesus came into the world with no prospects, and he lived that way for 33 years. But there's an important application you need to see. The same Jesus who would later teach, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, grew up in a home with law-abiding parents. Even at great discomfort and deprivation to themselves, they obeyed a pagan government decree. Since the decree didn't command them to sin, they obeyed. 
So the application to you and I is clear. If Jesus, even as an infant in utero, submitted to the civil authorities and continued to do so through his life and taught others to do so, is not our duty clear? This is the life to which we are to be conformed. The believer should never be bothered, never be troubled by the actions of governments and rulers. I can't tell you how many people I speak to this about on a weekly basis who live on social media or live on this news channel or that. It stirs them up, media that doesn't believe in the providence of God. And they come and speak to me about how they need to disobey this edict of the government or that. And I remind them over and over again, God is in control. He can and will overrule all that wicked rulers do to the praise and glory of God. Remember Psalm 2? When magistrates try to throw off the sovereign rule of God, he laughs at them. Remember Ecclesiastes 5? That God watches over the actions of all rulers. So my friends, just as Joseph and Mary weren't the least bit troubled to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem, just as they didn't say, let's figure out a way to, to rebel against this. Let's write letters to our congressmen. Let's, let's take out ads. Let's pick it. Let's do all these things. They simply humbly obeyed. Another application. Doesn't this text show you what the duty of the believer is? The believer is being conformed to the image of Christ. It is to seek the lowest place. When you do so, you are then being conformed to the very image of Christ. If there is anything I would convince you of this morning, it's that our Jesus chose the lowest place and ordained and decreed every circumstance from prenatal life to agonizing death to humble himself. If you're in Christ, you'll be progressively doing the same thing. In the home, you'll be delighting to serve the others with whom you live. On the job, in school, in this church, it will be your delight to more and more die to self and shine the spotlight on others. Finally, be reminded, Jesus emptied himself. That's the message of Philippians 2. Jesus emptied himself. No one did this to him. He was not a victim. He decreed it. He made himself of no reputation. The creator became like the creature and not just any man, but the lowliest of men. He even became a bondservant. And if you're being conformed to his image, you today are called to humble yourself and choose the downward path. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you for this beautiful, glorious, delightful picture of our Savior. That he would choose the difficult things, the humiliating things, so that he might save a rebellious people. Lord, we pray that this text would endure Jesus, endear Jesus to us all the more. And that we would seek to humble ourselves being conformed to his image. Lord, may we too, just like him, be found humbly, wordlessly obeying the civil magistrate that you've placed over us and delighting in that lowliness that is indicative of all the followers of Christ. How we thank you that in your good providence, 
you carefully ordained every step in the Savior's life. From the place of his birth to his birth to the fact that there was no place for the Savior to be born except a barnyard. And so, Lord, how we trust you that if you can ordain all of these things and do so in the life of Christ, you can ordain all things in our lives for good. And so we pray with faith in you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.